When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, Thou hast taught me to say, it is well. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Before I jump into the scripture, I just wanted to address um, a couple things because emails come in and people have questions about the church and where things are at with the coronavirus and uh, where we are at as a state as far as reopening. And I just want to uh, address uh, the how complicated uh, these questions are because. Uh, all of you watching uh, these videos uh, come from different perspectives and uh, the responsibility of the church, the local church, and what it means to be uh, a, a, a faithful presence and as Rick McKinley calls it, a, a prophetic witness uh, is is of the utmost importance to us uh, as a church. And so there's been a group of pastors in the greater Portland area that have been connecting regularly to talk about how do we make steps toward reopening? What does this look like with uh, Governor Brown's current 
the uh, current stance as far as uh, gathering and the need for social distancing and the phases by which the city will open and uh, and where do churches, especially churches that are over 500 people, um, stand in that. Uh, and, you know, there's a lot of unknown factors and, and really it becomes a moving target. But the questions that I'm getting are coming from varying standpoints around uh, political convictions. And I want to just first of all state that the coronavirus, I fully recognize, uh, as most of you do, that it is being uh, politicized by both the left and the right. And there is no doubt in my mind that there are agendas at play. But that doesn't change the fact that the virus is real and it's really killing people. It also doesn't change the fact that there are a million opinions from people that are far more informed than I am around the safety of people gathering together. And I have my own personal convictions and comfort levels, uh, but I have found that even on the staff, those convictions and comfort levels vary. Uh, and so when I get an email wanting to know why we aren't standing with the churches that are suing uh, Governor Brown from Baker County, uh, and that this is uh, an attack on our religious liberties, I just want to remind all of you that the letter that the pastors in Greater Portland uh, came around to show that we were unified as a church uh, did not give the government carte blanche. Uh, what it says is at this point, at this time, uh, we stay unified in our desire to be supportive of local officials and government that we might continue to be a faithful presence and witness in the city in which God has placed us. Uh, if we feel at any point where the agenda is specifically to limit religious freedom, that that is the agenda, then we have a responsibility. Our loyalty is to Jesus as king first, just like the early Christians in the Roman Empire. Remember, Paul himself and Peter wrote that we are to submit to government authorities, that there is no authority in place that is not there um, without God allowing that person to be there. So how do you reconcile then, uh, if we're called to submit to authorities, uh, a willingness to stand against the rule? Uh, well, where Christians in the early church uh, handled this, how they handled this was very simply, they submitted to the laws of the land, which meant that when the Roman Empire demanded that, that they declare Caesar as Lord, Christians refused to do so. Uh, they were not going to worship Caesar, but they accepted the laws of the land, which means they accepted the consequences of standing against that rule. We are not being asked to give up our religious liberties. We are being asked, along with every other American citizen, uh, to, to follow the, the laws of the land for the protection of human life. Whether this is being politicized for left-leaning agendas or right-leaning agendas really is not our place to get into the middle of. I am convinced that it is the responsibility of the church to remain apolitical. Uh, it doesn't mean that we don't stand up against racism or human right violations. It doesn't mean that we don't care about justice, but we are not in the business of telling people how they should vote. Uh, that is not the responsibility of the church. The church's number one responsibility is the gospel. 
and how do we get the gospel out. And so I just want to encourage all of you, this is complicated. If I was to take a stand against government officials right now, uh, that may appeal to some of you, but it would also be offensive to many of you, which means that it would not only create Door of Hope becoming an anathema in the very city which we live, which is a very liberal and very progressive city, it would also mean dividing the church uh, that we are a part of. And so unity is important when it comes to witness. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. I know you're getting stir crazy. I know you're, you're, you're hoping uh, for things to go back to normal as soon as possible. We all are. People are lonely, they're hurting. Uh, this is a time in which we need to figure out creatively how we can continue to be conduits of, of the light of who Jesus is. And so I just encourage you to, to recognize, like, when I get these emails, I, I, just, I just feel like there's, there's a lack of awareness of how complicated and how many people um, are represented by Door of Hope and the responsibility that we have first and foremost to the gospel God has placed us in a progressive liberal city, and we want to live, as Paul said, peaceably with all people if possible. Uh, so this is where we stand right now, and if we feel that there is a violation of, of uh, where we are being asked to not worship Jesus, of course, we would take a stand against that, but it doesn't change the responsibility for us to be good citizens not so that we can see our own political agendas fulfilled, but so that we can see the gospel go forth to the ends of the world. So that's all I have to say about that. But I just thought it was important to address uh, here at the front end of this message. All right, well, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Romans. And today we move into chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8. And we're going to be looking at um, the the subject of justification, specifically what it means to be justified by faith. I want to begin with a quote from John Stott in which he said, justification is the heart of the gospel and unique to Christianity. No other system, ideology, or religion proclaims a free forgiveness and new life to those who have done nothing to deserve it. God justifying the sinner. And how are we justified? Uh, well, it also is connected to the justification of God's own character. How can God be holy and justify sinners? Well, it is because the just and holy one became both the judge and the judged in our place. God took sin seriously, but he took the seriousness of sin into himself. This is what Jesus did on the cross. And this is why we cannot earn our salvation because sin has rendered us impotent. Uh, the dilemma of sin is that it has made it impossible for humanity to save itself through its own efforts. And so what justifies our salvation? Is it the works that we do? Or is it the one who has worked on behalf of human humanity and taken the guilt and the consequences and the blame into himself? Uh, 
Uh, this, is, this is the power of grace. It's the central tenet of the gospel. It is completely upside down when it comes to the kingdom of God because Jesus on the cross dies for the victim and the victimizer. Isn't it interesting how inconsistent we can be with grace? And aren't you glad that Jesus is absolutely consistent uh, when it comes to grace? I was thinking um, of that great uh, that great book, Just Mercy, uh, in which um, Brian Stevenson says these powerful words that every person is more than their worst act. Um, are we consistent with that application? Because that is the power of grace. It's giving people not what they deserve, but giving them what they don't deserve. And we give it to them because we have received the same treatment. Jesus has offered us the gift of eternal life as a gift, and that gift must be received. We all need help, and we all need to continue to function in that position of grace. For love believes all things and hopes all things. And so Paul begins here in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, What then shall we say? That Abraham, and here Paul is appealing now to, uh, to the Old Testament, uh, to Abraham, the father, um, the father of faith. Uh, he says, what shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Remember, last week we considered uh, that, that salvation by grace eradicates the ability to boast in our own ability. Uh, and so he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. In other words, what are we told about Abraham? In Genesis 15, verse 6, when God appears to Abraham and calls him, he chooses him. This is what we call the, the representative man, that God chooses one from the many to be a representative for the many. Uh, and uh, this is a powerful um, picture. This is what Jesus is. He is the representative um, of a new humanity. He is the representative man, the new Adam, uh, who, is, who comes on behalf of all of humanity. Well, Abraham is selected by God, chosen by God. And it says, and God tells him, I have chosen you from among the people, uh, and it is through your seed uh, that all nations will be blessed. And what are we told? It says that, he believed in the Lord, and God accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham's trust in God's covenantal promise uh, is what, what became the very basis for his justification before God. God imputes righteousness to Abraham. He calls him righteous because of his belief. Now, it doesn't end there. It's, it's important to know that Abraham acted then, and that speaks of that an aspect of faith is covenant loyalty. It's a faith unto obedience. Um, but that initial act, that movement of grabbing a hold of God's offer, I have chosen you, Abraham's trust in God's covenantal promise, uh, becomes the very means by which Abraham is considered right before God. I think this is uh, powerful when we look at Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verse 6, when the, the preacher in Hebrews begins to declare to the church examples of what saving faith looks like. And he says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and, he, 
and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Remember what I said, that faith may begin with, with an intellectual assent. I must believe what is being said is true, but it, but it must become trust. And it's not just, I believe God is who he said he is, but my faith is a dependence upon God to be God in and through me, to act on my behalf. And this is why Paul says Abraham's justification was not based upon anything he did, but based upon his trust in the God who saves. Uh, and this is why James, uh, when, he, when he speaks forth in James chapter 2, verse 21, which is often considered a contradictory uh, verse to the writing of Paul, I personally do not believe that. I, I think that scripture is God-breathed. I disagree with Luther that James should have been removed from the Bible as not inspired. James is looking at the other side of saving faith, the, the effects or the outcome of that faith when he says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? This is, this is long after that covenantal uh, that covenantal promise was given where it says Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. That righteousness was played out in Abraham's life when he willingly offered his son as a sacrifice. James is concerned with the outcome um, of faith. Paul is concerned with its origin. Faith is, remember, a disposition of trust toward an object that allows that object to do something for you. So the necessity of faith um, is essential. And this is like the first step in, the, in AA. One cannot experience the freedom from, from alcoholism until first they recognize they need help, that they cannot do it in their own strength. They need something bigger than themselves to believe in. They need help. Uh, and I think that this is one of the most beautiful principles. A friend said to me the other day, it, it might be one of the truest religions, AA, uh, because it's so dependent upon a place of grace that it's a place where there is no judgment, uh, but those who are willing to say, I need help, um, help is available to them. And this is why the necessity of faith for us as believers, I don't know about you, but I tried for many years before I, before I became a believer uh, to work out my own salvation uh, in my own effort. Uh, unfortunately, that, that target was a moving target uh, because the things that I thought would save me seemed to vary from year to year, but nothing was what brought me any relief uh, from the very fact that I knew deep inside me that I was meant for more, but also felt at the same time the crushing reality that I could not accomplish what I felt I was meant for. And I think this is the dilemma. We feel in the depths of our beings what Ecclesiastes says, eternity that has been placed in our hearts. We're meant for God. And we try to, we try to fill that spot that only God can fill with all sorts of other gods, gods that break our hearts. And those gods demand of us performance that we cannot keep. And this is why the gospel is such good news, because sin has enslaved us and Jesus has come to set us free. So the necessity of faith is, it's, it is so essential. Uh, there is no beginning point. We are justified by faith. We are made right with God, not by our works, but by faith in Christ. The object of faith is what Paul moves on to in verse 3 when he says, For what does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Everybody exercises faith. We all put our faith in a variety of things. We can put our faith in our intellect, uh, in, our, in our physical strength, in our jobs, in our spouses, in our kids, but none of those things will satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. Faith is not, uh, is, is not peculiar to Christianity. Uh, faith is a part of human existence. We all function by faith each and every day. But faith is only as good as the object in which you place your faith. Uh, it is the object in which we place our faith uh, that determines the validity of that faith. You can put your faith on a, on a frozen lake, but if that lake isn't frozen, uh, you can walk out on a frozen lake, but if the, if the lake isn't truly frozen, uh, that faith becomes, becomes deadly uh, because the object in which you have placed your trust or your, the weight of your existence uh, has the potential to give, give out underneath your feet. And this is why it says here about Abraham's faith that it, was, it wasn't just Abraham's faith in what God promised. It was Abraham's faith in the God who made the promise. Uh, and I think that this is the importance. This is why Proverbs 3 verse 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Uh, isn't that one of the, one of the great dilemmas? Uh, even as I addressed in the beginning, just the variety of opinions uh, that come to me via email, is that none of us have enough information to be dogmatic about what is happening in the world right now. The fact is, is that there is a real virus and it's really actually killing people. And there are a variety of opinions on how we should go about dealing with that. But because we are in an in, in unprecedented territory, which this is all new, dealing with a disease that we haven't dealt with before, uh, that all we can do is, is come up with opinions uh, and there's a great book uh, called Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, and one of the, the, one of the most uncomfortable principles uh, that is put forth in that powerful book uh, is, is this principle, what you know is all there is, is the amazing ability to jump to conclusions based upon incomplete information. And the human mind is unbelievably gifted at this. We can come to false uh, false narratives so quickly uh, because our mind is incredibly agile when it comes to creating narratives uh, that try to help us make sense of the world in which we live. Um, but the fact is, is that all we know is all there is. And so if our knowledge is limited, then, then our opinions are limited in scope. And this is why we have to understand that the object of our faith uh, needs to be in God, that we're not leaning on our own understanding, but we are trusting in the Holy Spirit who reveals the very heart of God. And God often leaves very uh, various areas of our lives uh, in a place of mystery. He doesn't, it's not like you give your life to Jesus and all of a sudden, you know, your future is read to you. And Jesus says to his disciples, 
follow me, he never says where he's going because it doesn't actually matter where they're going. It matters who they're following. And I would just encourage you in the same way in this time. This is our justification. It's trusting in a Jesus who has the freedom as Lord to lead us wherever he wants uh, and to do with us whatever he wants. But the question is, is are, we, are we living by faith? That is a dependence upon Christ to be Christ? Or are we still depending upon our own limited understanding, our limited minds, our limited bodies, and the limited information uh, that is given to us in this broken and sinful world in which we live? Which brings me to number three, the principle of faith. Uh, in verse four, he says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Uh, now this this is a powerful illustration. It's so practical because think about it. When you get a job, you work, and that work uh, is uh, defines uh, your earnings. Uh, you work for pay. You work, and uh, and there is now a debt to you owed by your uh, your employer. Uh, and and I think that this is this is important for us to understand. But what if our works come up short? Uh, what if we aren't capable of of doing the work uh, that would bring about the result that we want? Then we are the ones that are debtors, and like we are indebted. I, I had this happen once when I was uh, running my own painting company. Is that I I was growing and getting more jobs, and I realized very quickly that I was not a man that was meant to uh, manage a staff uh, because to grow a uh, any kind of construction or painting company, you have to be able to manage your jobs well, and it requires a tremendous amount of time management because usually you need, if you're going to have a crew, you got to have multiple jobs going. Uh, for me, as an artistic temperament, the only way I could get jobs done was to be the only one doing it and to not take any other jobs until the job I was currently doing was finished. Well, I learned my lesson the hard way in that I tried to do three houses at once with just one other employee. And what ended up happening is that I ended up with a debt to the house I was painting because I didn't finish it in a timely way. I relied upon an employee who didn't paint very well. And so instead of making money, I ended up owing money on that house and had to go back and redo the work on my own. This is the reality of our salvation. We do not want to be responsible uh, for saving ourselves. We are not capable of earning our salvation through our works. It is a total dependence upon Jesus for what he has already done for us. This is why Christianity is, is in large part receptivity. It is the receiving uh, into our life the gift that Jesus freely offers. The problem is, is that we have to humble ourselves. And that that's, could have been my downfall had um, I not realized I was not capable of doing what I was trying to do, and I had to recognize that. Um, I had to repent of trying to do it, and I had to make it right. Well, I think that this is one of the issues with receiving the gift of grace, is that people by nature um, find it very difficult to ask for help. 
um, our egos and the climate within our culture that, that continually feeds the lie that everything you need to live victoriously is found within yourself. It's this idea that we are our own gods and we are the masters of our own universe. And this faulty belief system is what is, I believe, led to the unprecedented despair, anxiety, even suicide in our current age, uh, because it's a lie uh, that brings nothing but death and destruction. We are not capable um, of living the lives that we are meant for. We need help, um, but to receive help requires humbling. Humble yourself it says, and the Lord will lift you up. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We do not work for Jesus. We work in Jesus by faith upon him. I, I think that, that it's important for us to keep this principle that Paul is getting at in, in focus, and that is if it could be worked for, that is salvation, it would not be a gift, but a debt owed or a wage earned. And this is why in 4, 1 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Isn't it funny that we are constantly taking credit for things that we didn't even have control over? You didn't have control over where you were born. Uh, we could have been born into a slum in India, but this is where we were born. You didn't choose that. You didn't even get to choose how smart or or maybe not smart you are. What we have is much of what we have is, is come to us uh, without, uh, without effort. So that even the concept of a self-made man, I, I, I sort of balk at. Uh, I think that, that it's a false, it's often a false dichotomy. It's more of a dichotomy. It's more of a fairy tale, if anything. Uh, and Paul says, for who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did not if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? We do not work for Jesus. We work in Jesus by faith upon him. Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 gives us the principle of how it is uh, that we live by faith. The principle of justification by faith is right here. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a beautiful verse, a verse worth memorizing, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I was living in the flesh, I now live by faith in the Son of God. In is the most important preposition in Scripture. Uh, it puts us in the person of Jesus. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. We are the branches, he is the vine. As he said, without me, you can do nothing. If we abide in him, we will produce much fruit. And this brings us to the outcome of faith. Uh, verses five through eight. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Remember what he, Paul says in the beginning of the letter, quoting from the Old Testament, the just shall live by faith. When we believe in the one who justifies the ungodly, and, and God is able to justify the ungodly through the atoning work of Jesus, it allows him to justify the ungodly without being unjust. And says, 
but his faith is accounted for righteousness, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. This is why I often use that language that I borrowed from Paul Zoll when he says that grace is unfair. The lawless deeds are forgiven. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In other words, we are no longer objects of God's wrath and judgment, but we are objects of His grace and favor, not because we deserve it, not because we can earn it, but because God is gracious in the essence of His being and has worked out salvation for us through Jesus taking the guilt and condemnation into himself because God is gracious, but he is also holy and he is just. He cannot be just if he justifies the sinner without the consequences of our sins being dealt with first. And this is why Jesus is, we are told, is the lamb without blemish who is slain before the foundation of the world. It was already in God's mind before the world began there was a decision made in God to atone for the rebellion of his own creation, uh, for his creatures, human beings who are made in his image, rebelled against his rule, defining for themselves right and wrong. And we see that being played out all around us even today. We should not be surprised when we see agendas at work in days as dark as we are living in right now. We should not be surprised by manipulations and people taking advantage of, of one another. We should not be surprised by racism and violence because the world is groaning for its salvation because sin has infiltrated every arena of human existence and humanity has lost sense of what it means to be made in the image of God. And this is, we should not be surprised, but we should be grieved by sin because we know what it means to be forgiven by grace. It also means that we should be willing to give grace and show mercy to those that do not deserve it because we know that we do not deserve it. You guys, may we be defined by the gospel a gospel that tells us that our God covers the ungodly with his righteousness. Faith receives a righteousness that is foreign to the believer. We receive into ourselves something that is otherworldly. God covers us with his perfection. Jesus is the ground of our righteousness. Faith is the channel by which the life of Christ can be manifested in and through us. Righteousness is perfect obedience to the will of God. Therefore, to trust in Christ is to grab hold of perfection in a moment. It's not that we are able to be perfect. It's that we are declared perfect, not because of us, but because we are found in the one who is. We are found in Jesus. Jeremiah 23, verse 6. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. We are justified. That is, we are made right by our faith in the one who is our righteousness and our salvation. Remember, on your worst day, 
Jesus is crazy about you. And these dark days are not taking him by surprise. He is up to something. God is working. We are told that before Jesus returns, that the days will grow increasingly dark, which means that we should be, we should be shining increasingly brighter in this dark world. Let us not come into a time in which we allow the anxiety of the age to, to uh, infiltrate and contaminate the beauty of God's very available presence uh, in these days. Jesus wants to utilize the darkness of these days to bring about his redemptive purposes in the world, and he wants to do it through you. God loves you. He is with you. Thank God we are not justified by our works, but by his work and our faith in that work. The faith in Christ that we exercise is the means by which we find our justification. Love you guys so much. Till next time, this is Josh. Thank you.